Hello and welcome to another edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. I'm Eric Ryder and today on the show, part two of our fantastic interview with Rollo McGinty that we recorded in December of 2019. Boy, the world really has changed a lot since then. And uh, as we continue with this COVID-19 outbreak and quarantining around the world, having a little podcast that you can enjoy for an hour or so is a nice distraction from that. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this one in particular. By the way, if you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back and listen to that because uh, if you're a Wooden Tops fan at all, you're definitely going to want to hear uh, all about the making of Giant, the early collaborations that Rollo was involved in, and uh, some of the great artists that influenced him as he became a songwriter, singer, uh, guitarist, and performer. So again, check it out if you haven't already, but uh, on this edition, it, it's no less essential because we talk about the underrated second album from The Wooden Tops. That's right, Wooden Foot Cops on the Highway. And we talk about the making of that album, how it was different from the making of Giant, uh, the players that were involved. And we talk about the live album that came out in between the two records, Live, Hypno Beat Live, and how that eventually spawned a major dance hit with the live version of Why, Why, Why. All of this and more in this edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. Hope you enjoy it, and I hope you're all staying healthy. Without further ado, here's part two with Rollo McGinty. The second album, the second proper album, uh, Wooden Foot Cops on the Highway. Can you talk a little bit about making that? Because it's, it's different. There's a progression there, I think. Uh, change in sound almost, but still very wooden tops, but just like, I feel like uh, maybe Giant was a little more acoustic oriented and wooden foot cops, uh, maybe a little more electronic. Is that fair at all? Or um, do you see it differently? Well, all of the all of the material that was written for, that to me it's the same, okay? Yeah. Because uh, all the, the, the material that was written for Giant, was written with a very amount of drum machines, and um, so uh, it kind of was that, and then me playing over the top, but mm-hmm. uh, and then giving it to everybody else, uh, and then them embellishing that. But there was a good long time to do it. There was quite a lot of life lived. Uh, there was quite a lot of uh, uh, time of no pressure, and. The songs were given time to, to to be played live, to help shape them, and producers come in and everybody had, you know, we, we our little room in Battersea Rise, we would play stuff around all day. I mean, believe me, we, we just, we go in to play one particular part of the song and we would play that all day. Mm-hmm. And take some lunch and then go and play it. That's how we trained ourselves to be able to play. Um, it, particularly me, and I was like playing acoustic guitar and singing, but I had been a bass player, so you know, and five minutes I got it for that. But, but being able to play and sing at the same time, Jesus, that was hard. Oh, I and know. And everybody was the same, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So and then so we would, you know, uh, we just play the chorus with everybody singing. So we had so much time to focus 
uh, on each song and make it happen. But then, after Giant was done and we toured it, we toured non-stop toured it, uh, and I really, believe me, I'm not on playing, I loved it. But then suddenly it was Christmas, uh, and uh, we had to we had to be in the studio to record the the, the following album in March, uh, and there was no material. Yeah, it was so I locked myself again in yeah. Battersea Ride at the warehouse uh, and I went in there every day. I was also doing driving lessons, uh, learning to drive. Uh, did it stop this car come out of that? No. Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it did not. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I did pass my driving test, I mean, um, and uh but I, it was it was a very dual thing, like being completely uh, uh, in a in a kind of creative height as being mental as anything, and also doing the driving lessons. And when we when I did pass my driving test, uh, the driving instructor said to me, um, "So, uh, what about that day when you had all the lights going and the windscreen wipers going and everything was all going? What's always happening there?" Then? Mm. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. Um, I used a Lindrum, which I now use a new harder program. I did quite a lot with a, uh, a really tiny plastic Yamaha keyboard sampler that had a little microphone that, on a curly wire that came out. I did quite a lot with that. Uh, and um, it was before. The Atari was on board, so yeah, yeah, it was that. Um, and it was quite simply made, but I only had about eight songs at the end of it. And it, it, to my mind, uh, Wooden Foot Cops on the Highway was uh, uh, was a couple of sh- songs short, but God knows how I managed to get like eight out in like, that amount of time. So, yeah. you know, but, but I would like it to have had a couple more. But it swiftly transpired that everybody was quite sort of worn out from all of that touring. And so getting people to come in and start working on stuff was, was quite hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to go, I mean, Benny would come in and do stuff. And uh, well he, he'd come in and look in and see where I was at. And he'd say, oh, so, you know, plays a little bit of Wait again, so I play a bit, and, he'd go, mm-hmm. and then and then he go. Uh, <laughs> don't really kind of get anything off anybody. I felt quite alone doing that, and then suddenly we had to go in the studio and do it, and like you know nobody had played any of this stuff, uh, and um, it was extremely hard, um, and also you had a changing keyboard player too, didn't you? Um, Between the two records. Or am I getting that wrong? No, you're getting that right because um, actually there was there wasn't anyone except for me who could actually play the parts that were on the on, on the demos. Mm-hmm. But some of the demos were really nice. I mean, the demo of "You Make Me Feel" uh, is I, I listened to it quite recently. I'm quite shocked by how nice it is. "Stop This Car" was really bombastic. Um, uh, "Wheels Turning" was very handmade kind. Tackhead style, kind of, you know, bah, bah, yeah. Bah. Uh, but it had that kind of um, um, 
very driving rhythm. Yeah, it had that kind of can kind of yeah, I want more type guitar in it. Uh, and um, and I really loved that so I was really looking forward to, to an opportunity to try and kind of get something a bit like that so I you know I definitely was influenced by Can on that uh, I don't mind admitting it um, and I can't remember oh uh, In a Dream was like really banging um, and it was all like handmade arpeggios and, and crazy I can't oh and what you give out will surely come back to you mm-hmm. was actually that was the only track I had, and that was made for uh, strangely enough for a mate who was he's called Charles August, and he was actually a choreographer from America who did like bubbling brown sugar and, and all of that. And I met him uh, because he was a friend of some dancers that I knew that always used to come round. Uh, to do with my ex-girlfriend and uh, they were a company called Maasai and they were one of the first all-black uh, contemporary dance companies African-based and Charles was the choreographer so weirdly I knew him and he one day said to me you know oh, when you make me a song and I said what, what kind of song do you want he said oh, just kind of you know like a motivational song because he, he he was actually like a like a kind of physical motivator on a TV show, Muscle Hearty or something for sure. This choreographer, this famous choreographer was doing this kind of shitty job being like a, a fit guy, on a, you know. Um, but so, so I wrote that song for him uh, and I forgot about it and then I found it uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, it was actually quite a bass line, a wicked bass line. So I had done all that. So I dug that one and threw it into the mix and 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 then um, we we uh, we were in the studio. Uh, Columbia Records. Uh, Steve Alboski was our A and R man, who had signed Def Jam and all of this stuff. It was like a serious dude. Uh, and you know we discussed Gary Lucas. I met Gary Lucas, and it was very much driven by American money that album because. They didn't have any. They, they, their first contribution was to pay for a live hit no beat live to be done. So, right. Yeah. So, that came out in between Giant. And yeah. Live. It was like Giant Live, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they, they. It was originally a live uh, broadcast for K Rock. In LA. Uh, but CBS, uh, Columbia, they decided they wanted to to put something out because they'd done this deal with Rough Trade. What were they going to? Mm-hmm. You know, how long did they have to wait to have something for? So they. So they did some interesting things, like they got uh, Arthur Baker did a, a remix of Give It Time, which is really nice. Uh, I, I, I prefer the dub version. Uh, then, uh, so they put that up, uh, they paid for that, and so that was actually um, finalised and, and mixed in New York uh, at a power station, all of those kind of studios that you used to hear of the time I got a channel, you know, I met Nile Rogers, and, you know, it was all that kind of stuff. Uh, and um, and that's where Scott Litt came from. So Scott was the house engineer at Power Station, but then he hit it big with REM. So he was now REM's producer. So he he was a big investment by Columbia to come and work with us. And I went over to Nashville, and I went over with my home, my demos of like a metal tape, metal cassette tape, to meet Scott mm-hmm. and played it to him. And you know he kind of liked the idea of it. 
but I think he thought when he came over to it, all the band were going to be playing it, and what he didn't realise it that was that was not going to be possible. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had an enormous amount of pressure to turn it round, and, and, and it was a bit freaky for my little brain to deal with with all that money uh, invested. Uh, and so uh, it was actually Benny who suggested to me, why don't we get the Atari system in? It would just come out. Why don't we use that? So we did. We brought the Atari system in and learned on the spot. And believe me, all it was was like you know a computer that runs off floppy disks compared to what we're looking at there. Yeah. It was nothing. And it all came out of an Atari sample. That's, that's how it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and so the album started to take place in output. You know, we were still on a learning learning curve and people were coming in to help us every time we got like, really stuck with the Atari. And believe me, it crashed. Uh, some some days had to be cancelled in the studio because the Atari went out. It was a freaking nightmare. But it was coming together. You know, yeah, and you know, I invited Gary Lucas to come in and 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 to add some Americana to it, which he did, uh, and um, finally that album got removed from the Roundhouse Studios where we recorded it again, uh, and off we went back to New York with it, uh, and you know there was a few people uh, like. Uh, uh, the drummer from Scritti Politti and Lou Reed came with Fred Mayer came in and he did he did he sort of improved our drum sounds because it was still still out, out the archive you know so he came in and he came in with this like IBM computer mm. and you know it was all synced up and uh, and uh, and it started it started to to become much fatter uh, and I'd also brought some friends in I brought Doug Wimbush to come in and play a bit of bass so he ended up playing on that that uh, that which give out song. There was some keyboards needed on that, uh, and much like we'd used um, the squeeze box uh, from uh, Jack Emblow on Giant, uh, he was chosen because I really loved his work on Grace Jones. And uh, there was a point in the studio where Bob Sargent said, You know, we've got any ideas what we should put on that? And I said, I'd love to get a squeeze box. He says, Oh, I know a good squeeze box. And I said, Who's that? And he goes, oh, Jack Embro, who played on, like, you know, Grace Jones. Goes, oh, that's my favourite squeeze pop of all time. Mm-hmm. My God. Jack Embro was in there in 45 minutes. Oh, wow. God, playing on, 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 on So Good Today. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, it just kind of uh, grew from there. And so, you know, we had the Parliament keyboard player come in and play on that. And... Um, I helped him get his keyboards up the staircase into the studio, and we chatted, and, and uh, he was he was phenomenal. I've never seen somebody's fingers move on a keyboard like that, just like so lightweight and yet so powerful and so fast and just gentle fingers. You know, all of that time with Parliament, it just like this classical, classically trained keyboard player adding like the P funk. You know, like amazing to that transformation. So, yeah. you know, I just kind of um, it kind of was finished and it was done. And I don't know how we got through it, but we got through through it. Uh, and now, uh, uh, um, 
what we call Columbia, had their own project to mm-hmm. to put out and to um, to sell. But unfortunately, uh, something happened to Steve Raboski, which was that. You know, he had made a deal when he joined uh, uh, CBS that they 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 couldn't they had to give him a year's notice if they ever wanted to terminate his contract. You know, so he'd like really had a lawyer, hard lawyer, do that for him. And whilst just after Woodenfoot Cox was done, uh, he got offered this like super job. It's like head of A&R of you know, wherever in, in California at a and I think it was and he kind of wanted to do it mm. uh, but they were like uh-uh, remember your little deal about we can't get rid of you for a year you got to waste a year so every artist on Def Jam and Wooden Tops and Easter House we all got absolutely the door was slammed on us so the promotion on that album was I mean they made a point of not asking anything he he, he asked for, they, they made a point of not even answering it. They, they just left him to rot in his office. It was awful. That's how it is in big corporations, that kind of yeah. hatred. Uh, awful. So just by association, you guys lost So it. we got stuck with that. Yeah. And, and yeah, and you know, so when we talked to promote that the album, the, the, the promotion was really, really limited. Uh, so we got more promotion over here in the UK than we did, but people liked it. I mean, you know, like Rough Trade in, in Germany and and stuff. They they really pushed it. So so yet again, we were we were kind of really busy in Europe. I we did tour America, but it could have, it could have been worked a lot more that album. It was better than that, is what I'm saying. But yeah, you know, I agree. Yeah, that that was the first Wooden Tops record that I heard, and it got me hooked. Quite, quite a lot of people have said that yeah. to me, and you know, I I, I get that. Uh, and I, you know, it, it to me that, that record has like a kind of element of miracle about it because it was so hard to make, uh, and um, you know, this happens. This is what happens. You know, if you get to a certain stage, these things happen, <laughs> and and. Um, I actually really like a couple of tracks on that album. I, I really like Maybe It Won't Last. I really like Stop This Car. I really like The Made Feel. I really like In a Dream, although that to me was quite unfinished. Wheels Turning, yeah, it was good, but 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 I prefer my home demo with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm pleased with how it turned out. Um, but, uh, you know, that was coming out towards the end of the 80s, and at the end of the 80s, Thatcher and all of that, you know, at the end of the 80s, we had a massive financial crash and many, many, many businesses went under, including Rough Trade. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the point where uh, we were playing gigs that were so big that your eyes needed to move apart a little bit to take in the whole horizon. I remember festivals that we played where... I just couldn't. It was. It was like looking at the open ocean. You know, it was just so huge. Uh, and um, I did. I yeah. We were okay. It probably sounded out good at the front, but I really hated that thing that we can't hear each other and we're all so far yeah. away from each other. Um, so it's just as well that now we're playing smaller venues and we can we can actually see each other on. You know. Right. Uh, so. 
you know, I think for a lot of people, oh, you want to be really big and really successful, don't you? Yeah, but oh, I prefer to feel like that was a really good gig. Oh my right. God, we nearly nailed it. We, because the thing about the wooden talks was nearly is, is nearly nailing it. We, <laughs> we want to nail it. Still now, we we have, you know, like I just had a conversation with 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 Frank DeFratis today, which is about well, it could have been better. It could have been better. You know that that you know that's what's important, not the scale and the amount of of alcohol that's sold, right? Because right? let's not forget the liquor god that controls everything in terms of live performance. Sure. So you know, it's 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 really about if you got it right and you guys think not if anyone else thinks you guys think you got it right you know it's, it's almost like the day when we do when we do a gig and we all come and go oh, we did it that's it finish <laughs> some of the reviews around wooden flip tops and by by the way do you recall where that title came from i did very well because what happened was i went to the kitchen at the studio do you mind no, no go ahead no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> I, I went to the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and there standing in the hallway was lee scratch perry uh-huh. who i had never met personally but he's a really good friend of adrian Sherwood, who we, we work with all the time from, you know friends you know uh and uh, I just walked up to him and said, oh, oh hi, you're Lee. And he's like, yes, I am. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I said, oh, uh, what are you doing here? Do you need any help? Because you look like no one's looking after you. And he was in the wrong place. Okay, this is the roundhouse. This is a little bit King's Cross. Right. Uh, we were in the roundhouse, but he needed to be in the townhouse. Mm-hmm. So as there was a bus strike, and he got a taxi. The the, the taxi driver taken him to the wrong place. Um, so he was lost. Uh, and you know, uh, for a normal person, then that's sort of kind of not particularly remarkable. Right. But yeah. Lee Scratch Perry is dressed from head to top in cracked mirrors that are held together with ropes and, uh, yeah yeah his shoes are uh-huh. reflecting light all over the scene and everything so probably not a good idea for him to be walking out on the streets of Camden uh, like that mm-hmm. so you know I just basically said well um, okay Lee uh, I'm a really good friend of Adrian's uh, you know a good friend of Adrian's and um, I'll, I'll make sure that you get a taxi and I'll get my name's Robert so uh, we 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 get we call a taxi, but because there's a bus strike, which is because he, he didn't understand why there was a bus strike. It was actually a bus strike because bus drivers were getting beaten up and their money stolen. This is before the big glass screens were taken. They, they were just getting attacked, and so that's why they went on strike. Yeah. But he didn't know that. It was just like bastard buses were on strike. It was quite funny, and. Um, so uh, I ordered a taxi, but it was going to be like you know, good forty minutes before before it turned up. So uh, I said, well, do, "Do you want to come and sit with us, or here's the sofa, can I make you a coffee or something?" Yeah. And he said, "Oh, here, you know, like a cup of tea." 
So I made him a cup of tea, and and he said thank you, and then he said, well, what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, well, we're recording an album, but it's a kind of quiet moment at the moment, so you know, you all can come in, you know, have a smoke or whatever, and, you know. So he came in, and Scotland is not particularly okay with reggae music, the history of reggae music. So he says to me, who's the guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, that's Lee, Lee Scratch, Scratch Perry. Yeah. And he's like producer of Bob Marley and, you know, and everything. And as soon as I said that, Scott goes, fuck what? And I said, yeah. So is it okay if he comes and sits with us? And he goes, yeah, 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 bring him in. I've already got straight on the phone to Ben and, you know, Ben, Ben, he's got to in the studio. Get in now. So Ben's like on his way over. Uh-huh. He's running from, from, from you know, London. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so Lee comes in. He's perfectly civil. Yeah, he's really friendly. He's really chilled out. And then he asks, what, what does your music sound like? And we were working on Will's turning. Uh, and at that time, it had like a kind of offbeat reggae keyboard. So it was like boo doo boom boo doo boo-boo-doo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-bo
uh, with him singing uh, and me playing bass and Benny uh, on drum machine and stuff and, uh, and and we wrote a song which was called Back to Work You Lazy Bastards <laughs> about the bus drivers I still haven't been able to explain to him why they're on strike and yet right. I have got a, a pretty good reason you know yeah uh, and um, so uh, he was still there till about half past two in the morning uh, and then uh, and then he left and it was like a whirlwind had come into the studio and left mm. and when he went all the three of us just all looked at each other and went oh god you know even Scotland oh crikey you know it was just like a a, a mad rush of creative energy from this old yeah. man well, yeah, yeah. Old man, <laughs> really like twisted old guy and that was when I realised that everybody's oh and he also put like a spook on the mix of death because he did all this like kind of voodoo stuff on it. Uh, and um, he is like Jamaican Monty Python mm. he's very funny uh, he's very clever he's got a head full of kind of religious information and music and artists and history and it's all mangled up but it's a kind of comedy he's just having a laugh but if you're like most people you're scared of him he's like above your head and you're scary but something in the middle of it all I realised he's like, he's like Jamaican Monty Python that's what he is I've got him yeah. um, uh, and, and so yeah yeah we finished the album and, and I didn't know what to call it and I just couldn't get this wooden foot pops on the highway thing out of my head so that became the working title so it was titled by him although it was actually my piece of paper that inspired him to say sure. that that sort of was and it was like a really mad album title as well mm -hmm. Giant was so simple yeah. and I, I didn't want to call it Giant because it mm -hmm. was just like that as a movie title come on you know mm -hmm. the best bit in the movies when they all when all the kids cry when they realise the turkey at Thanksgiving or Christmas whatever it is mm -hmm. it's like their turkey from the back garden that's my favourite scene but I don't like it really I don't care about it and but everybody liked it, and I was the one person that didn't. But anyway, you know, you can't you can't dictate to everyone all the time, so let them have their input and whatever. And it did well, so I shut up. Yeah. But I, I that was my turn. <laughs> yeah, I wanted that, and uh, you know, I had to fight for that because uh, obviously American American record was like, what the hell is that? So I had to explain it to them. Uh, but um, unfortunately for us. Lee Perry had just had the degree of success with Terence Trent Darby mm -hmm. uh, doing a remix of one of his songs. So, because I think maybe some of that happened in the same studio, I think his manager, not really him, is because he probably already forgotten about it, but his management thought that maybe, oh, well, then if we're there, we probably got loads of money and charged rough trade a phenomenal amount of money to use that vocal. Mm. and Rough Trade wouldn't pay of course right. so it it never got released it didn't get released on the album although it is sneakily on the website because they're a non-profit basis I can do what I like and sure. Rough Trade's gone but uh, yeah it, it, we could have we could have really I've only got like a couple of rough mixes but it would have been great to have really incorporated that properly into the track yeah it wasn't possible to do that yeah, it would have been a whole different thing really <laughs> yeah 
so um, start of that question was that some of the reviews of uh, wooden foot cops um, were really I think lazy because some I remember reading some of them that seemed to think that it was just like giant part two which would have been you know still would have been great but like some of the reviews just just seemed like well you guys had, had laid out your vision on giant and this was like just Mr. Boston said that I I'm not gonna name names but no, no, I, I know just the name. <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking like are you did you listen to the same record I did because to me oh. it's it, there's a lot of growth in in between the two records and they're they both stand alone as both having you know fantastic songs fantastic the guitar is really different on them isn't it yeah absolutely uh, they're very different so but it's still very wooden tops yeah but it's just I think it's the legacy of my voice. Uh, I think that's the problem here. There's someone else's song on Wooden Foot Cops in a Hurry, and mm-hmm. nobody would have just said that. Well, I think that's the, that's the, you know, and it's the loudest thing in the mix, isn't it? Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of that. I think it's that. It's just more of that shit. I think, oh, God, I love that. <laughs> so, but that, you know, it's very, as soon as I sing on it, right, that's it. It's ruined forever because it, now it is the legacy of being my backing track. And, and you know, um, it's it's not well. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm a mad egotist, but it, it's not really that. It's 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 that the vocal is a very clear sounding instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, almost like an oboe. If 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 if, if every track on album one had the oboe, it was the loudest thing, and then the sure. oboe, you know, it's a musical instrument device, isn't it? So, right. So you know, it's that kind of English thing, and so. Um, yeah, it can't be helped. As soon as I sing on it, then it turns it into that. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I still disagree with people who said that because I think I think there's marked difference in the, the backing tracks and all of the yeah. parts yeah, I agree. to the previous album. Yeah, and wheels turning. So I'd say bullets. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> wheels turning was uh, I think the the first single of that primary single. Oh, uh, wheels turning was the the single. At least that's the one I remember seeing the video for at the time. But um, yeah, it was the first one and only one. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. You made me feel that video. Did. Uh, no, I thought you made me feel stop this car. You made me feel the first single. You're probably right. I'm just yeah. Well, over here, American it perspective, it's often different because yeah. we get things released at different times. Yeah, the dog chasing. Thing. Yeah, yeah it was a dog chasing moment, which I, which um, it was the same director who did uh, uh, "It Will Come" and mm-hmm. "Give It Time" and "Everyday Living." So we yeah. worked with the same team with Panny involved as well, uh, and he had this farm, uh, and so um, we went to hit. So, uh, yeah, we went to his farm for that particular one, for You Made Me Feel. And it was all, I got all of these masks and stuff like that, so it was all done in this barn. And it was kind of like acid barn, you know. Uh, But uh, what happened was I was mucking around with the dog, and the dog ran off, and I chased the dog. And as I was chasing the dog, I looked around, uh, I could see the camera was following me. I thought, no way. So I came back to Derek and he said, Derek, 
please don't use the scene chasing the dog. <laughs> please, that was just. And he goes, he goes, uh, no, no, I won't. I don't want to. Come on, the film. It's like I was so horrified. We were, we were, we were in Germany or something, and it was like, hey, the new video's coming in, and, and uh, we, we went to a bar to because they had a video screen in there, and we sat there, and I distinctly remember. Uh, it's a ginger-haired a German tennis player, what was his name? He was really young, he started winning Wimbledon when he was like a boy. Yeah. Not, what's his name? Oh God, he's still there now, he's a commentator now. He's got, he had ginger hair okay. and he was trying, he, he, he won all of the... You, you don't know? No. Uh, oh. I'm breaking on that. Boris. Okay. Boris Becker? That sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. We'll go with that. I think it is. Yeah, because I remember that was what was on the screen, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, it looks like an eleven-year-old boy winning winning the Grand Slam or something. It's like, wow, you know. Uh, and and then they switched that off, and they put our video on, and we were watching it, going, yeah, yeah, cool, <laughs> the, the barn that's cool, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Whoa, ha, ha, ha. And then suddenly there's me chasing the dog, <laughs> absolutely livid. There was another thing we did, which is kind of neat, was. Um, it was through a uh, new uh, Yellow's um, uh, uh, kind of engineer, semi-producer. Uh, uh, who, he, the Swiss? Uh, uh, well, Ian, Ian Tregonin. Yeah. Ian, yeah. So he was a good friend, and, and, and so we needed to possibly do a remix. So Ian and I went over to Boris Dieter's studio in mm-hmm. Zurich. Wow. Fucking yeah! <laughs> uh, I'm a huge yellow fan. So me too. Yeah, me too. I mean, that was like, very yeah. Cool. And 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 kind of you know, we had like a few days there all to ourselves. Uh-huh. And Boris did this really cool thing where um, we were allowed to use anything we wanted, except for the fair light. But to be honest, we didn't want to touch the fair light anyway, because right. uh, I didn't even know how to switch it on. But all the other ones and everything, all of this classical, classic. The yellow keyboards and everything with that, which was hardly really used, but I, yeah, I couldn't mock about it. But anyway, Boris, before he left, he came in to say goodbye and, and everything. He's a brilliant guy, and he um, he 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 got this egg, and he put it on like a little roll of sellotape right in the mixing in the middle of the mixing desk on the top there, so it was in front of us all the time. And he said, "I'm leaving this egg here." To remind you of the fragility of all the equipment in here. Oh, you're like, <laughs> no worries, boys. You know, it's such an honour to be here. Yeah. Nothing is going to get broken, believe me. Uh-huh. Uh, and so off, off he went. And, uh, and you know, I remember, I, remember, I remember how quickly we worked on that remix. Uh, and then uh, I remember that there's a, an ambient mix of You Make Me Feel which is actually my my original demo from the warehouse. And what I did was I, I got I got a reverb and I put it on a really big, massive setting, so it's like cavernous, and shot little bits of the song into the reverb so they would hang there. And there's some really beautiful magic moments that happened when I was doing that. <clears throat> so I took the... I took the master of that with me, and we we then put that through the, the yellow uh, lexicon reverb and, and doubled it. So it was just huge. It's like really being in space. 
or up in the clouds, you know. Uh, and um, it was sounding really good. But as we finished that, it was like getting to time to 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 end it all. Mm-hmm. And Boris has already got back because we knew he was back because he basically what he did was he crept into the to the other side of the glass of the thing, and uh, he held this ridiculous pose for as long as it took for us to notice that he was there. It's just <laughs> funniest time thing we both looked at it, looked up there, and I know he was like, you know, it was just really funny, uh, and uh, so that was actually the final work of that being bounced done was actually being done as I was vacuuming the the carpet. So that beautiful, beautiful, wonderful, magical thing was actually not as loud as the vacuum cleaner was as it was being mixed down. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, and that was like, uh, you know, pretty proto ambient music that mm-hmm. people people still coming to me now going, yeah, I play that at nightclubs. It's just, yeah. uh, do you? So yeah, you play stuff and then you drop that over the top, like, whoa. Uh, and um, so I'm actually like, really proud of that. Uh, but the elongated mix of uh, Stop This Car has a Baby Bell cheese advert on the top, which has got that whole thing about, like, you know, the, the police officer is stopping the, the lady and it's, it's an advert. Okay. Yeah, nothing mattered in those days. It was no, no. copyright. What the hell? So it was Ian's idea. So to, to, oh, God, this really funny, like, you know, California girl, like, babbling on, you know, literally out. So we just dropped it over the track. And we also turned the, the we turned the, the master tape down to, like, half speed and then blasted up to normal speed. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't really what anybody was looking for. And I know that but Why 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 had a second life as a dance track um, that got played in Ibiza and all kinds of clubs. You know, it was a, it was a big hit. Do you want to talk about the, that yeah. a little bit? Yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, I mean, it was that there were there was always indie clubs. Yeah? Mm-hmm. There was always clubs that played a variety of music. So, like, Move Me was in those. Uh, Get It On was actually off the album, was in those. Uh, uh, well, 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 believe it or not. Uh, and, uh, like, we were talking, um, uh, Stop This Car was, yeah. was a big one. Well, wooden tops were always very danceable. It was always yeah. very danceable, and we really had to extend it to inch mixes. So, it kind of like for me, uh, there was nothing particularly extraordinary about it because I was going out all the time and I was always going out to like you know, Wag Club or uh, Barracuda or just any of Bat Cave, anywhere. Yeah, go out. I, I like going to clubs, um, I like going to gigs, I, I love things like Grace Jones, I love things like you know, Black Yahoo, I like it, I, I loved Afro B, you know, mm-hmm. Fellow Cootie, one of those kind of things. I just like things like, you know, great to have a beer and dance around and yeah. like sometimes get in a crowd and, some, you know, it just feels like the place to be and it's all and dance, dance. It's not like when you go to a gig and everyone stands facing that direction and holding the beer. Uh, so um, London 
London nightclub life is very normal for me. And also, when I first came to London, there was the Hot Sty, which was a Rip Rhythm Panics club. Um, there was there was just so many places to go in the evening. Yeah, so there's nothing unusual or remarkable to me about nightclubs. They're always there, and they're always really good fun, and you're open later than pubs and stuff. So you can go and like, you know. And the other thing is knowing someone at the door, so you can get in free as well is even better. So, yeah. That's important. Uh, yeah, and then, and then when you <laughs> when were sort you're of scared. in, yeah, you're a relatively <laughs> successful band, you could just walk straight in most of the time. So right. that was it. And. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people that you used to see all the time, say hello, and I saw one the other night, which is a fellow called Mark Moore, and Mark Moore did like S-Express, uh, and there's a DJ, and uh, probably in America you know too much about it, but he was like one of the faces I always used to see everywhere I was out, that was any, it was any good, he was there, right? Um, and uh, YYY was our personal little club record that in our rehearsal room that we used to love playing because it made us dance and it went through it started off it started its life as um a bit of kind of electronic um uh afrobeat and it was called africa satellite and it was instrumental and i was living in peckham at the time and it was on my eight track and you know, Benny would come around, bang some percussion on it, and it was it it, it all always was kind of our favourite track from the moment it arrived, mm. and you know everybody enjoyed their parts on it, and and we literally would play it all day, uh, and it's the only track that we had for the entirety of the eighties where all the people in the warehouse clubbed together and were on the verge. Of asking us to please stop playing that over and over. Yeah, that was the, the, the only time we, we were on the edge of having a noise complaint from all our friends in there. Yeah, uh, because we just we just played it so much, and it started its day its days almost. It was Afrobeat, but it was almost a bit more reggae fight, and the tempo was slower. That's when Adrian Sherwood mixed it, uh, but. We had absolutely no idea that there was some little scene kicking off in Ibiza, but we, yeah, didn't know. Uh, and there's a particular guy whose name is Leo Mass, and Leo uh, is kind of like one of the people that passes records to DJ Alfredo, who is the one who is the most known person of of the roots of the Ibiza thing, um, and. So, what was going on in Ibiza was like a really big deal for a lot of people that that became DJs. Carl uh, Cox, for example, you know, these people were playing. Well, anyway, so I'll go on. So, it was an afternoon, early evening, outdoor, kind of groovy track. It wasn't. It wasn't like massive club floor thing, and and and. and, and it's on quite a lot of the early days in Ibiza, like sampler tapes and all of that sort of thing. The Adrian Sherwood groovy mix, which is how we were playing. But I changed the guitar part on it, and the tempo went up, and 
it was a, a staple part of our set. Uh, but it sort of suddenly, now it had this kind of flamenco flavour going with the Afrobeat and the technological sort of sequence. So, so it had like a, a slightly new twist to it, and it was a bit faster. And, and it, we got better at playing it, and, and it got really tight, and, and to our... Uh, to our amazement, our little personal disco was making its way out into crowds, and crowds were vibing on it in the same way as we were. Mm-hmm. So when we did the, 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 we discussed it earlier, the live album, Live Hypnobeat Live had a live version of that song on it. Right. So back in Europe, Leo and uh, Alfredo, they go on a shopping trip to buy some records to take back to be the for, for their nine, and they saw that we had we had a, a new live album now, and they went, oh let's get that. So they bought that, and in the second they heard that track, it was like everything that they were about, like the percussion, mm-hmm. the acoustic guitar, the flamenco thing, the beat, the Afro beat, the energy of it, and. The extraordinary thing about it is that if you hear it on a big sound system, it's got this sub-bass thing that you don't know is there if you hear it on a normal hi-fi system. There's a kind of boom, 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 boom. It's different. And it just went off, like, immediately and, and just became huge overnight because it had, the, it had that but it also had the live energy. So what, what I couldn't get my head around for quite a long time after I found out that was, well, surely the, the, the whole thing about the, the, the club thing is that it's, it's very tight and it's kind of, you know, it's designed to be very sparse through the sound system and, and all of that. Uh, but when they put that on, it just turns the whole club night into a wooden top gig, mm. yeah. And I've been I, the very first time I heard it on a uh, a massive sound system was uh, at Shoe Club in London, and I went with some friends. And, and uh, in in London there was a kind of uh, movement from taking taking club nights out of normal established clubs where the drinks are phenomenally expensive and there's an awful lot of like uh, security on the door and it's like it's a bit of a kind of pleasing the liquor god experience uh, there is buildings opened for one night just to be a mad crazy club that are like disused hospitals in King's Cross or warehouses and stuff like that and this was a gymnasium this was a big gymnasium in London that I went to uh, and yeah, my friend had a he had a backpack on with a, with a cycle lamp on it. I remember it was like shining out, and we were just having a really good night. And then it came on, right? And it came on so powerfully that I've, I I absolutely I've, I ran to the toilet. I sat in the toilet and listened through it. It was like not me for six. I couldn't believe it. What the fuck? Yeah. And then I came out and and kind of got used to it. And there was all of this. The sub bass in it that I never heard before, and I mixed the thing. Right? Yeah, I was with Scott in 
sound production, is it? But this is different. Uh, and it has this kind of call and response between the kick drum and the and these, the, 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 the sub, yeah. and the place just go absolutely nuts. It was like a gig, but in, in a club. And yeah. Like, what? Uh, and then uh, I got you know I got calls from from DJs saying you realise this is a massive hit. Mm. Uh, it's 10,000 people know every word and it's, it's the record of the night they're all waiting for it and when it goes off the whole thing just goes it's, this is huge yeah so I went back to see um, you know Rough Trade and went to see Jefferson told him about that and said you know I think what we should do is maybe get someone else to do a mix of it or just put a white label out with that on nothing else blank on the other side who cares Make about five hundred of them, and just give them out to hand them out to the right DJs, and yeah. it's a hit. Yeah. And he just looked at me, and he didn't know what I was talking about. And he said, I "said oh, no, I don't, don't get too excited about it because what I think you should just just get your acoustic guitar out and write some more songs." <laughs> that was it for uh-huh. me because I knew I knew that that I had a chance of being a bigger hit than anything we'd ever done, including yeah. Good Thing or anything. And it was doing it all by itself without any hard work to make things sell or radio play. It was like, it was alive. It was right there to take. And that was the point where I realised that there's a big difference between people like me that go out at 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. people go to bed at 11 o'clock. And it felt like everyone in London who was under a certain age was out at 11 o'clock because everywhere was packed, everywhere was bugging out. And, you know, to this day, I meet, I meet DJs who said, oh my God, I, you know, I made my career playing that. You know, yeah. we played it everywhere. You know, we used to, we used to, you know, all these people. Who, it's like, it was a mega hit, you know. And of course, what did it take? It took somewhere like, someone like uh, Alan McGee, a creation record, whose head is in the right place mm-hmm. to to just get a DJ to come and mix some any old piece of shit track that they've got, yeah, right. which he did. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, Paul Openfold, he, he jumped on Happy Mondays. And so we missed it. But did, we didn't miss it. We had it. We had it, but we just didn't commercialise on it. So it's 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 a, a great moment in musical history, um, and it is not manipulated by anybody. It just happened all by itself. Just organic. And, yeah, yeah. And I it, can't think of another like guitar-based band that had any kind of like a dance uh, play like that. You that's because there isn't one. Yeah, and especially a live recording. That's mm. that's really really rare. I know. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. It's shocking. Mm-hmm. Now, so many people try to recreate that, not not copy that record, but try and get that kind of, you know, like KLF, you know, good, good, good friends. They, they, that's what they were trying to do. They were right. trying to rock up the rock up the house. Yeah. Oh uh, well, you know. But I mean, you know, we have a, a remix package of that out. We didn't put it out in a big way, to be honest with you. 
but it's been the same turntable here and I've witnessed that going off and mm-hmm. you know Leo himself the, the very person that picked up that live album and realised what he had there passed it to Alfredo he did a mix which is just it's, it's phenomenal it's fantastic and I've seen that though often probably what we should be doing is uh, is re-releasing that properly rather than doing it pretty much by ourselves which is what it was um, we, we should probably put that out with a couple more mixes and do a package of it because it's still alive and uh, you know Leo's mixes uh, Leo his mate Fabrice that, that the um, Balearic militant mix is killer mm. but it's more it's, it's, it's less rock it's more like Balearic house mm-hmm. but it's still got that thing about it uh, and um so, so was being like going out and you know these nightclubs and and hearing wooden tops played. Was, is that what got you inter- interested in electronic music? Um, no, I, I'm the sort of like yeah, craftwork suicide babe, and, uh-huh. and and you know I liked all of that. And, um, one of my favourite records is uh, my Belly by the Unknown Cases. Um, which has got a, a can guy on it, a rebox on it, and the percussion looks quite African, uh, and, and it's uh, it's quite sort of why in a way the original demo of why is sort of along these similar lines, but without that big fierce sequence. In it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just comes from being you know come from being a a, 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 a kind of Doctor Who nut, you know, electronic. Synthesizers, having a synthesizer for a bit. Uh, thank you, Adam. <laughs> Lent it to me for a year uh, or two, and uh, then and just being a, a musician at that point in time when all of that stuff comes on the market and you can get a hold of it, you know, because it was a time when only Peter Gabriel could afford to have like a Fairlight or whatever. Right. Then or was, yellow or artificial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but yellow actually started off on cheap, cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as as they as they had hits and got more money, then then uh, they 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 developed their their whole system. But they were pretty hands-on, small stuff mm-hmm. at the beginning of their first album. Uh, but Boris is a genius, you know. He's like yeah. a major genius. Um, so um, it's it, it's kind of like you know our our time is when all that stuff came into the playground to be played with or to be learned. And, you know, a lot of it's happening digitally now and there's lots of stuff to, to muck around with digitally. And, you know, you could say that uh, that, that actually, you know, it doesn't sound as good as, as all the moves and chords and overhangs and all that stuff. Uh, but maybe it doesn't, but, you know, a lot of time that's what you're hearing on the radio now and, you know, nobody can really tell the difference. Right. So Wooden Foot Cops comes out and it's successful, but maybe not as successful as Giant. And then Rough Trade kind of implodes about that same time. They went bankrupt. They owed a lot of people a lot of money, and they basically closed down the record label, well, not the record shop. Yeah, after, after what I just told you, you could almost say that's because you didn't listen to me. <laughs> you didn't well, fucking you listen to me, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it was right there in front of his nose. Yeah. You know, I mean, between you and me and all the people listening on that, I did actually go to a primal screen night, and I, and, you know, they were doing whatever the album's called that Andrew did, 
uh, and um, they uh, they had this band supporting them. Uh, and I was thinking, what's this doing? It's like this is like some kind of rough trade kind of thing, and, uh, and it had like a kind of Robert Wyatt sample, on it, and it was like kind of really bad dance music. Yeah. And there's can Jeff Travis stuck in? They said, "What are you doing, Jeff?" Yeah, it is Ray. He said, "Oh yes, well I've got my band. It's good, you know." We're here, but, um, I could actually have just bottled it right there. Mm. I could, because it was right there in front of me. And he, you know, and I'm not sure if he actually put two and two together. Actually, which is so off in his world. Right. But it was right there. He he could have had it all in the sense. You know, Alan McGee pipped into the post, and so did Paul Oakenfold. You know, because Paul Oakenfold was running, you know, department at London Records. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. Well, it, you know, Paul tells a similar story, and uh, not about dance music, but they had a song called "They." Their last album came out on Rough Trade. They had a song which was that? Paul. Um, oh yeah. We love life. They had a song called Sunrise that they played at the festival in Glastonbury, and it got this huge reaction. So they went to Rough Trade and said, hey, let's put this out as a single now because people are crazy about it. This could be like a really big track for us. And the record label said, no, 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 just wait for the album. There you go. The record label was Rough Trade. Just wait for the album. We'll put it Um, out. And uh, yeah. And they didn't listen to him. And then when it came out, like a year later, it didn't really do anything. So it's they they've got a record of kind of not listening to the artists when they feel like this something big could happen from a from a song, you know. It's astounding, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, I I don't know I don't know really what the reasons are. For it. Um, is it people think? I know what I'm talking about. I'm right all the time. I mean, there are a lot of people who think they're right. There are self-righteous people who think they're right about everything that they're saying. And it's so obviously they're wrong. <laughs> you know, Aguirre, Wrath of God, my, one of my favourite movies, you know. Have you seen that? No. Please watch Aguirre, Wrath of God. Okay. A-Q-Y, the A-Q-U-I-R-R-E, Wrath of God. Um, but um, Klaus Kinski is the main guy in it. and it's exactly about obsession and inability to understand what anyone's saying and, and, and self-righteousness beyond comprehension I'm going to put that on my list <laughs> fantastic All right, thanks so much for listening to this edition of Hidden in Plain Sight. You're going to want to check us out in a couple weeks when we release part three with Rollo McGinty. And in part three, we talk about what has happened since the second album came out. Spoiler, they put out a fantastic third album called Granular Tales. And they've reformed and have been performing live for several years now and are still just as essential as they've ever been. So 
You'll hear more about that in part three, and I really hope you check it out here in a couple weeks' time. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. We're on pretty much all the podcast platforms at this point. So uh, we are on Facebook and Twitter as well, so please find us there. We'll have links in the show description. All right, again, uh, music by Battersea, the theme music here, and uh, facebook.com slash Battersea, the band, if you want to find out more about us. All right, thanks again for listening to Hidden in Plain Sight. We'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Stay healthy, stay strong. We love you.